0: Waheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Waheguru Ji Ki Fateh. Welcome to another episode of the Sikh Renaissance. Today, unfortunately, my brother and partner in crime, Pai Singh, will not be joining us. However, that should not stop us from continuing onwards with the episode we had planned, which was on the Sri Guru Panth Prakash of Pai Ratan Singh Ji Pangu. Now, before we start, we have a slight banthi, a slight request for all our listeners, our audience, that in the past six, seven years, we have seen a massive upsurge in attacks on Sikh literature, particularly Sikh historical literature. Now, initially, this criticism, because it started off as criticism, started with valid points that we need to, sit down and construct a historical narrative of our past, of our heritage, with sources which have been cleaned up. We are currently using raw sources which are prone to mistakes Mm -hmm. and many other defects which need to be cleared up so we have a better understanding of our past. However, this has degressed right into this conflict with one group saying that all of Sikh history is pujariwad and what they don't agree with suddenly becomes a fake interpolation while others are hell-bent on accepting that incidents which show the gurus to be drug addicts, to be womanizers, all these are in one way or another authentic. Let's try avoiding this conflict and using our brains to acquire a logical understanding of our history with all its goods and its beds to comprehend our past and from their plan for our future. Anyhow, moving onwards. The Sri Gurpant Prakash is a mid-19th century chronicle delineating the rise of Khalsa sovereignty in 17th to 18th century Punjab. Despite Despite accruing great prestige in Sikh households across the globe, owing to its popularity among Tadis and historians and Kathavachiks, only a few lay Sikhs have ever read it or even attempted to comprehend its profundity. Before exploring its relevancy today, let us remember three cardinal rules of textual analysis with regards to historic texts. Rule number one is study the historian and their times. Rule number two is study the text and its times. Rule number three is study the internal evidence of the text. This trinity was established by the maverick historian E. H. Carr and is surgically detailed in his descriptive What is History? I was informed of Carian historiography by the legendary Dr. Balvan Singh Tillo and after seeing its defense by Carr within what is history, have accepted it in full. Now, for those listeners interested in finding out more about Carr, they can access his book online, they can purchase the book, and they can also listen to our Rediscovering Baba Banda, Baha, Banda Singh Bahadur episode with Dr. balwan Singh Tillo which is a two-hour-long episode on the history of Baba Banda Singh Bhadir, as well as how we should understand historical texts. Moving on. Who was Sardaratan Singh Pangu, given that we have to understand the historian first before their history? Positioning by Ratan Singh Ji Pangu age-wise is highly problematic. He refers to himself only a few times within his Sri Gur Prakash and there too in a rever- referential form to clarify how he reached a particular historic how he researched a particular historical event and slash or deduced a relevant conclusion. The chronicler Gani Singh located a manuscript of the Hanuman Nanak fable in the twentieth century based on which he proposed that pangu was the grandson of the famed warrior mitab singh now this was a well-known piece of evidence but garja singh further confirmed it however the rest of the information in this hanuman natak manuscript is under doubt it hasn't been fully authenticated so nonetheless here is what can be verified based on impartial research, which is outside the Shri Guru Panth Prakash itself. Ratan Singh Pangu was indeed the grandson of Mataab Singh, who had heroically avenged the genocidal massacre of countless Sikhs in the discretion of Shri Darbar Sahib by slaying Masarangar within its precincts in 1740. This was done alongside Pai Sukhasanjee. Mitab Singh was the son-in-law of veteran warrior and erudite diplomat Jatidar Sham Singh who commanded one of the five divisions of the Buddadal and who was also the progeni- progenitor of the famed Kuroda Singhia missile. Mitab Singh's son Rai Singh who survived the Mughal slitting his neck was Pangu's father. Rai Singh was a missaldar of the Kroda Sangiya Missal, a famous warrior as well as an eminent preacher who during his lifetime converted hundreds to Sikhi. Pangu witnessed the martyrdom of his family and multiple other Gursikhs. This allows us to theorize as to his age. Please remember that this is just a theory. On the eve of Masarangar's demise, Rai Singh was an infant. So, around circa 1740. Given that in 1745 Mathab Singh was martyred, if Rai Singh was five or thereabouts then, we can assume that he would have wed in his twenties around the mid-1760s. Bangu, if born around 1765 or 1766, would then be well placed to observe this later part of Sikh history in the making as he claims. So, if we accept these dates, the based on this theory now please remember again that this is just a theory based on the evidence we have if we accept this theory then this presupposes that ratan singh pangu was in his 40s when he happened to touch base with captain murray of the east india company a meeting which catalyzed in the formation of the Sri gurpant prakash so this was the historian now as for the text itself Gibbons' history of Rome portrays a people suppressing all doubts about their inhumanity and Machiavellian tactics by arguing that it is for the greater good of the barbarians who they are civilizing. Now, Gibbons was a historian who lived in Britain. He was almost a century before Pairatan Singh Ji Pangu, and he was writing at the time of Prax Britannia when colonialism was in the ascendant. However, he projects the concerns of his own times on the past to argue that what was justified in the past is justified in the present. So the historiography lesson here is not one of civilizational morality across the ages, but rather how a particular history can allow us a tantalizing glimpse into the historian's own times. Gibbon's Britain was self-introspective. Was the military application of colonialism justified? Gibbons argued for the affirmative given that in the past even the Romans had done so similarly. Now, while Pangu is removed light years from Gibbons, the same principle applies in regards to the Sri Panth Prakash as well. So, what does the Sri Panth Prakash tell us about Pangu's own times? So Ratan Singh Pangu, by Ratan Singh Pangu, portrays a hardy Sikh people who believed themselves to be destined for uh, for mastery over the world. Given their gurus had revealed divine existential truths to them, they were keen adopters of the Khalsa identity, five Kakars and all. Now, of course, there is this uh, controversy that Pangu only mentions three Kakars. Actually, Pai Ratan Singh Pangu mentions all five kakars and their practical usage. And the Sikhs he refers to, they only believed in the Guru Granth Sahib and never believed in any other scripture. Now, Grindar Singh Man of the USA has pointed out that in the uh, Shri Panth Prakash, Pangu does not even refer to the Dasam Granth or the Sarblo Granth. Controversy aside, the Sikhs who Pangu refers to. Death was no great fear to them, and they were astute masters of statecraft. They were armed to the teeth, savage in combat, but docile in other affairs. Bangu's fascination with these men and women illuminates that he was concerned that the era of the Sikh empire he happened to live in was effectively disenfranchising the Sikhs. Ease and luxury were fast supplanting, sleeping on saddles, and mastering all forms of weaponry. The glimpse we have of his times underscores a people fast sliding into arrogancy, and this arrogancy he wanted to oppose. Now, regarding internal evidence of the text... So, a comparative list of Pahiratan Singh Pangu, Shri Pant Prakash and non-Sikh sources, sources which tally with him will defeat our purpose in this episode. It will make it too long. But, that said, his work is radical for his historiography. A slight example should illustrate this. So, in around 1810, Captain Murray requested that native Punjabi writers furnish him with a historical record of the Punjab. Out of the multiple volumes he received, he selected Bhutte Malvi's work for an initial reading. However, he was dismayed at Shah's obvious evasion of many critical issues, Sikh supremacy being the most pointed, and lambasting non Muslims for slaying Muslims. So, his narrative basically, Malvi's narrative, said that innocent Muslims, all Muslims were innocent, they did nothing but the history of the subcontinent and especially the Punjab was one of where innocent Muslims were always persecuted by non Muslims. But Murray was not as gullible as Butesha believed him to be, so he set around for something less mythologized. He started casting around for something less mythologized than what he had been offered so far and what tallied with his own research, research, uh, researches. In this way, he was recommended by Ratan Singh Pangu. Murray was based at Ludhiana. Pangu, on familial matters regarding his family estate, often traveled there. So a meeting was arranged by a third party who we know nothing of so far and both happened to meet each other. Murray was taken with the charismatic Pangu while Pangu craftily commenced studying the British. In 1814, he presented Murray with the core of the Sri Gurpant Prakash. The fact that Murray accepted it and had it conveyed to his superiors reflects that it tallied with his researches. So what he had researched, he found it all to match with the Sri Gurpanta Prakash. Now, Pangu did not know what Murray had researched, but the fact that Pangu wrote such a uh, accurate history convinced Murray of his authenticity. So what is unique about Pangu is his avoidance of mythologizing in a majority of circumstances, his seminal prose and his repeated emphasis on mentioning his sources. So when checked against contemporary Persian sources like uh, Professor Kalvant Singh did before he published his Shri Gurpant Prakash, the Shri Gurpant Prakash actually withstands the test of time. So when its information is checked against contemporary sources, it actually stands out as being accurate. So no wonder Murray dispatched it to his higher officers. Now, moving forward, when we come to the compilation of the Sri Gurpanth Prakash, now this is where we're entering controversial waters, and again, we only have theories. So, Murray left Ludhiana in around 1814. Bangu mentions he concluded compiling the Sri Gurpanth Prakash in 1841. So, this difference of 37 years has ignited occasional paroxysms of controversy among academics surjit Hans in the 1970s might have had his finger on the pulse of the matter when he theorized that whereas the earlier version given to the british was an introductory chronicle omitting crucial details the version we have today was in fact compiled in 1841 but what compelled a recompilation and so late The Huns' theory might bear out when one considers Pangu's narrative. He is focused on Sikh sovereignty. He underscores the Khalsa's mystical and political role. He consistently alludes to statecraft and military stratagems. His historiography is replete with evidence of his efforts to discover the truth regarding the Dal Khalsa. So this constant underlining of sovereignty should be understood in light of 1839. Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the Sikh Empire emperor, had died that very year. The same year, his selected heir Karak Singh was deposed and killed. Karak Singh's own son, No Nihal Singh, fell prey to the dogra faction within the Lahore court. So by 1841, the warrior prince Sher Singh had taken over the Lahore throne. Bangu in his 70s by now could see the writing on the horizon. Now, it must be remembered here that Karak Singh, No Nehal Singh, and Sher Singh were trained soldiers. But none of these eminent commanders, in their bid for the throne, paid any attention to the Khalsa forces which were becoming rebellious. So Pai Ratan Singh Pangu, who, as I've mentioned, was in his 70s by now, he could see what was written on the horizon. So you have a rebellious army, you have weak rulers who are only concerned about their own power and pleasure. Basically, the Sikh empire, which almost two generations of Sikhs had laid down their lives for, was being rent apart by infighting, and non-Sikhs blindly raced to preeminence by Sikhs themselves, despite Guru Gobind Senji for warning the Khalsa to not trust non-Sikhs or non-Khalsa in matters of power. So, in circa 1839, thereabouts, Ratan Singh Pangu would have decided to remind the Sikhs of their glorious heritage, the hardiness of their forefathers and the sanguinary holocausts endured by stateless peoples. He could sense the lack of spirit among the Sikhs of the day, which would disallow them from avoiding British, Hindu, and Muslim entrapments. To this end, he presented the Panth with an enlarged and highly detailed Sri Gurpant Prakash, which built upon the original embryonic version he presented to Murray in 1814. Now, obviously, the hair-splitting over this issue can only be resolved when Pangu's British version is located until then, we can only provide satisfactory theories. Now, moving on, how is the Shri Panth Prakash relevant to today? What should be its application today? So, efficient statesmen like Churchill, bellicose generals like Patton, and astute diplomats like Kissinger have imposed their will on the world by studying history. Robert Kaplan in his Warrior Politics argues that the classics of history need to be popularized again today to produce the wily breed of leaders we once knew. Similarly, the would be Sikh leaders of tomorrow must return to their classics as well. Bangu's name should figure preeminently on their reading list. His Khalsa is not the woke virtue signaling tokenist of today, nor is it philanthropic. It is empowering and applies necessary cruelty when required to achieve its end goals. One witnesses a Machiavellian streak in the Sikhs of his days and the Sikhs he refers to in his Sri Gurpant Prakash. And those Sikhs are miles apart from the self-serving opportunists of today who propagate their ladle of charity as being some compass to kalistan that we will give longer to people and those people will help us get Khalistan, the stupid dream they have. So for Bangu, as much as for Clausewitz, war is an extension of politics. In a similar way to Thucydides, Bangu perceives conflict as a necessity to acquire self-security and sustenance. And much like Machiavelli in Simakwean, he alludes to the fact that preemptive offence is the best form of defence and necessary cruelty is required to keep the virtue of states intact. The Sri Panth Prakash's application in politics today can only be appreciated and achieved if we realize that the world is not the paradisical, democracy-loving, liberalist utopia which the likes of Ranjit Singh, Tadir, Tadriyavara and company portray it to be. Behind the sheen of security are grim men and women warring for their peoples and their right to existence. For Pangu, such are the ideal Sikhs worth celebrating as they will fight for Panth and Kaum without any credit. However, even Pai Ratan Singh Pangu has some issues of his own in the Sri Panth Prakash. And this is common with every history. So, objectivity. Kaur elaborates that history reflects through the historian's mind. And that's why we always try understanding the historian and their background. And so it is with Pai Ratan Singh Ji He was a descendant of the Maja Sikhs who had sided with Binod Singh in betraying Bandha Singh. Grappling with this, he writes a somewhat winding story of Bandha Singh who is initiated into the Khalsa by Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So, Pangu is agreed with this fact, contemporary Persian sources are agreed with this fact, and Rajput sources as well. So, Banda Singh is initiated into the Khalsa by Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Banda Singh is blinded by his arrogance and then recovers his dignity by dying a martyr's death at Delhi. So, here what Ratan Singh Pangu does is he amalgamates fact and fiction to salvage his own lineage but also proposes that Banda's own failings led to the extinction of the first Khalsa state. Now, of course, as we know, historically, this is not correct. States do flounder based on statesmen's own personal failings, but there are other compulsive factors as well. In Banda Singh's case, he was betrayed by Binod Singh, who felt that the Sikhs should accept vassalage from the Mughals. Banda Singh, however, was not ready to accept this strategy uh more information can be found in the episode we did with dr Bilvan singh Tilla, who has spent over two decades clearing up baba Banda singh's name based on contemporary sources moving on however other than this uh conspicuous refraction we can say by ratan singh pangu's narrative is otherwise finely detailed and objective though as with every other chronicle he incorporates contemporary practices uh his reference to the sword is Chandi and death is Kal or Kali. This does create confusion. But as uh, Professor Kalvant Singh shows in his Shri Gurpant Prakash, there is a key to unlocking these metaphors as well. Uh, he incorporates traditional superstitions of his time like reliance on astrologers as well as glorifying Maharaja Ranjit Singh as Gurbak Singh Shri, the reborn to vindicate an effective autocrat given that the Dal Khalsa was opposed to autocracy and monarchy in total forms. So, then we come to the issue of rediscovery, because the uh, belief is that by Ratan Singh Pangu died after 1841, but before 1846, so he did not see the onset of the uh, Anglo-Sikh wars. For some reason, internet historians have propagated this myth that Ratan Singh Pangu actually did... Uh, become a martyr in the Anglo-Sikh war. The age does not tally with that. Anyhow, no matter what year you propose him to have been born in. So, regarding the rediscovery of the Panth Prakash, the British annexation of the Punjab after the Second Anglo-Sikh War culminated in the literary holocaust of over 500,000 Sikh texts and twice as many weapons, as well as a general ban on all forms of Khalsa intellectualism. This ban was finally overturned by the Singh Sava Lahore, but not before many Sikh classics were consigned to thirsty flames. The Sanatani Gyanigyan Singh referenced the Shri Gur Panth Prakash in his introduction to his own Navin Panth Prakash. He argued that Pangu's semantics, myopia, and poetic inferiority had compelled him to make the Navin and he made a further reference to pangu allegedly mentioning the 10th guru man- manifesting the hindu goddess chandi to bless the khalsa so while the word of pangu and his Panth prakash circulated academic halls it was only in 1910 that Pai veer singh managed to acquire a heavily damaged manuscript which he finally used as a te- template for Providing the first published copy of the Panth Prakash in 1914 through the Vazir Hind Press at Amritsar. So, when this copy was printed, when this first published edition of the Shri Panth Prakash came out, it was instantly picked up by the multiple Sanatan factions and brandished about as evidence against the Tat Khalsa and Singh Sabha Lahore revivalists who were opposed to Sanatan practices. However, there was a literary auto affair coming for the Panth Prakash. Because for Pai Veer Singh, the story had only just begun. So straight after the publication of the Shri Panth Prakash, he was given access to a historic manuscript made by a copyist from the near original. So now there are two stories here. Either he was given this only a few days before the 1914 edition went under print so he couldn't really alter it, or either he was given access to one afterwards. (coughs) so when he studied this manuscript he realized that this particular manuscript was a not as damaged as the one he had relied on for the 1914 edition and b it was much older than that manuscript which he had initially used so this compelled him on a almost decade-long search in which he studied three more manuscripts handwritten manuscripts diligently so, there was the Lahore Library manuscript, which is believed to have been compiled around the late eighteen forties or the earlier eighteen fifties. Then there was the eighteen fifty eight manuscript and then the eighteen sixty six manuscript so by Singh, like other scholars, kept meticulous notes of these handwritten manuscripts, which he had the opportunity to study so after studying these, he compared them with his own manuscript for the 1914 edition of the Sri Gurpant Prakash. M- disconcertingly, he realized that neither of the three manuscripts he had studied after the 1914 edition had the same content in most places. So after a more thorough analysis, he concluded that the 1914 template manuscript was in fact of a very late date and because it was extensively damaged, he had no way of knowing whether it was corrupted or not. So, the three manuscripts he studied after the 1914 edition all matched each other in a majority of places. Of course, there were copyist errors, but these were easy to pick out. But none of them matched with what he had for the 1914 edition. So... By Veer Singh's almost confessional revelation as to the nature of the first Panth Prakash manuscript. The 1914 edition that he basically went out and said, Well, look, it's heavily damaged, the manuscript I used was most likely corrupted. This ravaged the narrative constructed by the Sanatan Sikhs. So, by Veersingh in the meantime brought out three more editions. So, one came out in 1939, the other one in 1952, and one in 1962. Each edition incorporated his research notes, what he thought of certain events, and the methodology he used to authenticate their transpiration. Adding more volume to his works was his detailed historiography. Because he had realized the error of his ways, and because this nearly drove his reputation into tatters. By Vir kept very meticulous notes in each edition which made the edition quite big. However, it should be noted that By Vir Singh also provided commentary and footnotes as to events he found as being problematic because one thing to note is that By Vir Singh always felt that the Tat Khalsa Bandai split was uh, highly exacerbated or maybe never happened. As we know, history points otherwise because this split did happen. But it did not happen in the same light as either Pangu alleges or either as Pai Vir Singh understood. But that's a discussion for another time. Right, so after 1962, the Shri Gurpant Prakash has no further editions, Until 1985 when the Sikh Research Board sponsored by the SGPC hires Dr. Jeet Singh Sital to publish a more reader-friendly Shri Gurpant Prakash. And this is comes out in 1985. So Dr. Jeet Singh Seetal performs a thorough evaluation of Pai Vir Singh's methodology. And this new edition of Gur Pant Prakash, which he publishes, comes at a critical period for the Pant. The militancy is in full swing and Khalsa consciousness is at an all-time high. And Seetal makes Pai Ratan Singh Pangu speak from the grave and across the ages to a people again living their historical reality and next thing you know, Kathavachak, Satyaskar, studies, Granthis, even karkus themselves all start reading and talking about the Shri Gurpant Prakash. And there is also an unconfirmed theory that it was actually the Shri Gurpant Prakash which inspired Kaldip Manak Svar Baba Bandha Singh However, controversy is again coming to the Gurpant Prakash. In 1988, Harinder Singh Chopra and surprisingly, very surprisingly, an elderly Surjeet Hans published a paper alleging that Pai Veer Singh altered the Sri Gurpant Prakash to divide Sikhs from Hindus. So, the accusation in so many words greatly damages Sikh scholarship with regards to history and historiography. Now, it should be remembered that Dr. Ganda Singh, had set the standard pattern for Sikh historiography when he published his translation of the Shri Gursaba. And what he says is that the Sikh historian has to carefully sift fact from fiction, keeping in mind that while Western historians were concerned with only this life, Indic historians have fallen into the pattern of utilizing reincarnation as a convenient tool to explain away their own weaknesses. Now, Chopra ignored this fact and very suddenly for a historian who was always claiming that we need Western methodology, we need to be careful, we need to provide history in the current context, Chopra suddenly turns around and accuses Pai Vir Singh of doing the Sri Gurpant Prakash great damage by leveling the accusation that he edited out portions from his 1950s edition which made reference to Raja Janak being Guru Nanak's progenitor and the 10th Guru manifesting Chandi for creating the Khalsa Panth and Sikhs being Hindus in Pangu's Over the ensuing years, Chopra built up this post-modernist track record of attacking Pai Veer Singh on these grounds. However, his research made two critical errors, which indicate an agenda-based motive. So his initial article in the Punjab Journal of Politics Volume XII number 1, January to June 1988, cites that he went off two handwritten manuscripts of the Sri Gurpant Prakash to discover Pai Veer Singh's alterations. Now, the first is the MS 797 manuscript in Punjab University, Chandigarh. The second is the MS 276 Guru Nanak Dev University manuscript, two Both of them are handwritten. Now, The strongest point against him is that he never bothered dating these manuscripts. So, oddly enough, he hypocritically salvages Pai Vir Singh for having an agenda, but does not comment on the authenticity or veracity of his own two templates, which remain undated and unauthenticated even to this day. Now, how surprising is it that he refuses to consider Pai Vir Singh's manuscripts, the manuscripts Pai Vir Singh he had access to, and suddenly relies on two manuscripts which he himself is not able to date, does not want to date. He can't confirm their authenticity, and he doesn't consider any other manuscripts which were traceable at the time. He doesn't consider their, uh, the fact that they are dated or that they've been proven authentic and near contemporary. Rather, he just goes off two manuscripts which he has access to. He would have had access to the other manuscripts if he had made the effort, but however, he only references to manuscripts which are inconsistent among themselves, which have evidence of alterations within them, and which cannot be dated to suddenly start pointing fingers at others. And the second point against him is that despite alleging that he wholly studied by Veer Singh's historiography and sources, he refused to consider at least five dated manuscripts of the Sri Gurpant Prakash with the oldest being from 1842, and two of them being the manuscripts by Veer Singh himself consulted. All these manuscripts radically differ from the two undated manuscripts he used. So, by Vir Singh's methodology was finally studied by Professor Kalvant Singh, Dr. Balvant Singh Tillot, and recently Sardar Gurthed Singh, who have also done a comparative analysis of the traceable handwritten manuscripts, with the oldest obviously predating Chopra's two. And they've published editions of the Sri Gurpanth Prakash, which we use today. Now, the manuscripts they have studied and used radically differ from Chopra's two undated manuscripts. And alongside, there is another edition which needs to be considered, and that is Santa Singh Nihang's 2000 edition of the Sri Gurpant Prakash. He had it published in the year 2000. Now, while his Niang acolytes claim it to be based off a historic manuscript of Ratan Singh Pangu, which only he had access to, a closer study revealed that he had only plagiarized of Pai Vir Singh's three editions. Other than altering the index and the typeface, he had done nothing else. <coughs> so, this, of course, naturally raises the question of corruption who would have corrupted Pai Ratan Singh Pangu, Sri Gurpanth Prakash, or made corrupt manuscripts? Now, with the considerable evidence at our disposal, we can conclude that Chopra made false allegations against Pai Virsing, and if his accusations are scrutinized surgically, they cannot withstand an impartial evidence based analytical approach. So the question becomes that if even the 1842 manuscript, made only a year after 1841, differs from Chopra's two manuscripts, then who corrupted Pangu's work? The initial clue, I believe, can be picked up from Gany Gyan Singh's works, who uh, provides brief references to the Sri Gur Prakash mentioning the Chandi manifestation incident. Now, it is more than possible that given Pangu's independence, he belonged to Noid Jata or Samprada. certain factions felt compelled to corrupt his work to reflect their own perceptions of Sikhi. Either this or in the aftermath of Punjab's annexation, the corrupt Lahore leadership led by Sikhs and non-Sikhs alike commissioned certain pedagogues to rewrite the Panth Prakash to prevent people from unfavourably contrasting them with past Sikh leaders. Whatever the reason, the historical presence of only three such manuscripts, the damaged one used by Pai Vir Singh for the 1914 edition and the two, one in Amritsar and one in Chandigarh, these indicate that these are neither pangu's work nor their copy. So until or unless a dated manuscript of the Sri Panth Prakash is discovered, which can be authentically and impartially traced and references Sanatan elements, then there is no point in floodlighting Chopra's research whose two primary manuscripts don't agree with each other. Now, regarding the corruption, it should be easy to do a comparative analysis and catch it out. And this is exactly what Dr. Balvan Singh Telo has done in his 2004 edition of the Shri Gurpant Prakash. Gurinder Singh ban of the USA has reconfirmed that at the end of the day, Chopra's work was based off two undated manuscripts. And all this brings us to the question that why would a historian and an intellectual commit this most basic of fallacies that he would not authenticate his own sources just to point fingers at Pai Veer Singh. This is not to say that Pai Veer Singh was perfect. He was far from perfect in his intellectualism. But at the very least, we should understand that false accusations not only harm Pai Veer Singh's reputation, and if we are not concerned about that, well, at the end of the day, they also harm Pai Ratan Singh Pangu and the authenticity of his work. Now, at the end of the day, there are currently three versions of the Shri Gurpant Prakash which are bestsellers. There is Dr. Balwant Singh Delo's version. There is Professor Kalwant Singh's version which has re- reached almost immortal status and the most recent by Sardar Gurtej Singh Ji. None of these versions differ radically from each other and they all incorporate by Veer Singh's historiography methodology. So, you can clearly see that three intellectuals who have studied the handwritten manuscripts, who have also studied Chopra's sources and his handwritten manuscripts, ultimately their conclusion is that his research is based on dodgy accounts. So, really, rather than actually beginning to doubt the Sri Panth Prakash just because some Sanatani idiots say so, We should preserve its sanctity and use it, but use it wisely because at the end of the day it's a raw source. It gets many things wrong about Baba, Banda, Singh, Badr and the Gurus, but these were commonalities believed in Pangus' time. So more or less we should treat it with respect and use it to construct a much more refined narrative of our history, an authentic, correct and refined narrative and we should treat it as being a raw source rather than a refined source and avoid controversies over it. Otherwise the Panth is stuck in this negative loop where we are going at each other's throats and circles over and over again over the most critical of things which is our history and our heritage which is shared among all Sikhs. For further reading on this, Dr. Balvan Tiloshrigur Pant Prakash has A very great introduction to this matter. Harinder Singh Chopra's article is also available online for those who wish to read it. Other than that, we are very grateful to the Veer's who helped us. Dr. Gurnam Singh of the Akal channel helped us quite considerably in understanding academic methodology. Anmol Singh Rode or Ran Niti Punjab on Instagram and Twitter as he's known. Please do follow him. He's a military historian whose personal research has revealed quite a lot of otherwise hidden facts about Sikh military history. And Jatinder tweets who provided a whole range of information including Chopra's original work and other works answering him while we were preparing for this episode. And above all, thank you to the listeners who requested us to do this episode. Until next time ji, Vaheguru ji ka khalsa, Vaheguru ji ki fateh.